Hello and welcome to Killer Serials. This is Tony Jones. This is Ryan Parker. Hey, we're a couple guys with PhDs in theology who love television and great storytelling. So we watch shows, we talk about them, and uh, we share this podcast with you in hopes that you uh, are intrigued by the kind of things we talk about. And today, uh, we're doing something... I mean, we've gone through seasons of shows before, but Ryan, we've never gone from episode one to episode 30 straight through a show, one podcast episode per uh, TV episode. No, we haven't. And, you know, we're, we always take these just with our background, a, a, a theological, a spiritual approach to the content or, or kind of mining the, the series for those themes. You know, it, looking back on the shows that we've, that we've explored, like Preacher or Russian Doll or, or something like that, I think it's kind of a commentary on the state of the industry and television where a show will come on and last for maybe one season maybe two, and then it kind of disappears. Um, and with the passing of time, I mean, we, we're looking at a show now that ran for at about 30 episodes. So, yeah, this is going to be a bit of a longer journey than we're used to. And, of course, we're talking about Rectify, which is the Peabody-winning series that premiered on the Sundance channel back in April of 2013. A lot of people listening may be fans of the show, familiar with it. Um, people like us who... Um, are really using this time during quarantine to get back into shows that we missed or uh, rewatch shows that we love. Uh, for a lot of people, this is one of those shows. It's been written about and talked about in, in kind of like best of its generation, one of the best TV series of all time. So taking this time to really dive into a show like this, of this quality of storytelling and, uh, you know, aesthetics, performances, what have you. Um, I think this it's the right show for the right time. Yeah, it's been on several of these binge-worthy lists that have been um, published during the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, everyone's staying at home. And then uh, I see these lists in the Washington Post or on different websites that say best shows of all time, shows that are eminently bingeable, and when I look at those lists, I've seen almost every show. You know, it's The Wire, The Sopranos, Breaking Bad, uh, things like this. I could go down the list. I've seen almost every one of them. But this show, Rectify, of course, I've heard of it before, but it, it wasn't like super uh, high on my radar. Um, and maybe that's because it was on the Sundance channel, and that's not a channel that I've ever had a subscription to. But now it's on Netflix, so it's available for everybody to watch. And I think it's a great, like you say, it's just a great excuse and an opportunity to dive into a show that was so well-reviewed um, and yet maybe has been underwatched. And, you know, I, I'm guilty of that myself. So totally thrilled to be jumping in to this first episode of 30 uh, of rectify. Yeah, I think there's a lot of ways that we could talk about the show and you're already hinting at one of those, which is kind of from an, an industry perspective with it premiering on Sundance channel, not a channel that many people flock to, but now that it's on a service like Netflix, so many more people can, can access it. But 
you know, a show that's always been spoken of, spoken of very highly from fellow TV writers, content creators. So it's like I said, it's exciting that it has a wider, a potential wider audience even now. But I, I think with a show like this, ignoring spiritual, potential theological implications and themes is to miss out on one of the major elements that make it such a great show. When you take a series, and and we're assuming that everybody who listens to this is watching along with us or has watched, so we're not going to spend a lot of time uh, talking about what happens in each episode, but are going to try to dig at those, those larger themes. But suffice it to say that this is a series about a potentially wrongfully incarcerated young man uh, by the name of Daniel Holden, who goes to prison as a teenager for the rape and murder of his girlfriend. 18 years later, DNA evidence suggests that he may not have been guilty of that crime, or certainly not um, acting alone. So Tony, I think right off the bat, we see in this first episode, within the first five minutes, I think it captures three major themes that hopefully this, the series will continue to investigate uh, that are, I think, deeply spiritual, uh, carry with them deep theological implications. And that's the notion of time, truth, and this idea of incarceration and captivity. Yeah, that's a great, you're right in, in all the three of those uh, themes, spiritual themes emerge in the first episode, and I'm sure we'll find more, you know, as we go through the the 30 episode arc of the series. One, one thing I found so interesting and, and appealing, strangely appealing about the show is the opening sequence is such a slow burn. I mean, you don't really know what's happening, who anybody is. You get the impression that there's this guy, he's about to be released from prison. He's in a back room watching somebody else come into prison. Um, He is getting his clothes back. He's watching somebody else, you know, go through a cavity search. And there's almost no word spoken for the first several minutes. Then there's some action kind of stuff happens. And then again, we see him in this long car ride that unfolds very slowly in which he actually falls asleep. I mean, think about, just think about this, Ryan, like pitching a show saying, here's what's going to happen in in our, like our first act. Our protagonist is going to barely speak and then he's going to fall asleep in a car ride, <laughs> which is, I it- I'm sure is all very intentional about building this idea of time. Yeah, absolutely. The narrative is functioning differently than a lot of, uh, you know, certainly than a lot of network television functions. I think to your point, the slow burn, it's quiet, it's meditative. And before he gets in the car, like not only are you saying like, well, we're going to have limited dialogue, limited action, and then this guy's going to fall asleep in the car. But when he is released from prison, he goes on this lo- lengthy ref- uh, reflection in his press conference about the nature of time. 
And it's not, he doesn't lead with saying, I want to thank my, my family for standing beside me. It's so great to be free. It feels wonderful. Uh, you know, I'm going to go do this, that, or the other now that I'm free. But he talks about contemplating how time works when you're in prison uh, versus when you're out, how you can think about the future. Does a, does future even exist or how does future exist when you're incarcerated versus when you're free? And that's when I realized that, man, this could potentially be, uh, obviously we know and we carry the weight of all these positive reviews and everything, but this is just working on a completely different level than, than you know, like a law and order or a CSI or something like that, right? I do. I, I did think of all these other scenes you see of people emerging from prison. Like, I mean, let's even think of the Shawshank Redemption, like bursting out of the mud and and muck uh, into new life in the rainstorm. I mean, it's it's almost like every like the Blues Brothers. Every time someone gets out of prison, there's this kind of joyous celebration and it doesn't. That doesn't happen. There's this line in that that press conference. The writing around that press conference was incredible. He says, at the least, I feel that those specific coping skills were best suited to the life there behind me. And he, he gestures back to the prison behind him. I doubt they will serve me so well for the life in front of me, so I will seriously need to reconsider my worldview. Which I was like, oh my gosh. I had these flashbacks to, you know, seminary when all we talked about was worldview, 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 and trying to change someone's worldview and how hard it is to change someone's worldview. And the only way you can get somebody to become a Christian is to change their worldview. And I thought that was such, and he, then he gives this little like Mona Lisa smile, like he's, it's a little bit of a joke that he's saying this. So I will seriously need to reconsider my worldview which seems a total understatement. But of course, nobody there is prepared for this uh, death row inmate who's just gotten out to be cracking jokes. You know, they don't find it funny. And he does. They talk about this later in the film, right? There's Gallo's humor and his little chuckle about worldview. I thought it was just so brilliant and kind of marks, hopefully, what we'll continue to see through the series, which is great acting. Uh, great writing. And and speaking of the writing and the setting for this, Tony, I, I just found it so compelling that when we talk about time, it's not just the concept of time and how so much of, and we're starting to see this. I want to come back to this later. I don't want to get too far into the incarceration theme, but how we mark time in our lives. I think the the quarantine that we're in now is messing with a lot of people's sense of time. So this, the series is showing how incarceration works and how time works f- free versus in prison. But also setting the, f- the story in a certain time, both in the larger world and in the life of the main character. I mean, imagine going in to prison as a teenager and then being released when you're in your 30s. Think about all that happens in your 20s that you've missed out on. And then probably more, more relevant for the moment for this, this first episode of all that has happened uh, in the world that he left behind, right? As he and Amantha are driving down the road and he talks about a video store, it came and went, right? There's a target 
and then the next town over, what's a target, right? Children are born in age and, and just w- without even having to say anything, right? Without even having to comment on it, just thinking about what happens between 18 and what is he now, 36, 35, 36? Yeah, it's 19 years later. You, you know, one of the things he says to his mom toward the end of the episode when he sits down and he has that beer and she's doing bills at her computer, and he, you know, he says something out like he doesn't know if he wants to become computer literate. Then he says to her, I can't quite get a handle on the concept of time yet. There have been moments here today where I feel like I've been gone only a few weeks and I'm still in high school, but mostly it seems like I was always there being the prison. It mostly seems like I was always there. So you have to tell me, mother, tell you what? She asks, when it's time for me to leave, he says. And one of the another interesting uh, uh, piece of dialogue where this comes out is when he is talking through the vent to another death row inmate who's um, newer, you know, and is kind of being, it seems like they're developing kind of a funny relationship that I'm guessing we're going to see in more flashbacks. But he is talking about how he's not doing time as he's waiting to die on death row. He's not doing time. And we see like uh, this overhead shot of him in the, you know, in the cross-legged lotus position. Um, And he's obviously meditating. And he says, I'm not doing time. Time is like basically he's stepped outside of the flow of time. And the other inmate says, I don't want to. I don't want to not do time like you. Well, he says, yeah, he says, I don't do time like you do time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's pretty fascinating. You know, the, the, the guy who's on whose life this fictional account is based is named Damien Eccles. And he wrote about the creator, um, one thing that McKinnon captures is the shock and trauma of someone just released after nearly 20 years on death row. The main character falls asleep on the ride home from the prison, then falls asleep again as his sister drives him around to see the town. When I first walked off of death row, I was so deeply in shock and traumatized that for nearly three months, I couldn't watch a movie, a TV show, read a book, or take a car ride without falling into a deep, dark sleep. Isn't that incredible that that's the experience? He said, I fell over and fell asleep like I was drunk, and I was drunk. I was drunk on the river of human energy that flowed all around me, over me, and through me. The human interaction energy I'd been starved of for almost 20 years. Tony, I want to, I may want to change up our conversation here on the fly because, you know, identifying three themes time, truth, and incarceration, I think we have to move immediately into this conversation about incarceration because I, as I mentioned in the last podcast, rectifies a series that I started but didn't finish. So I I watched the first two, three episodes um, last year or so, and I'm obviously jumping back in at the beginning here. But I remember the first time I saw this first episode, I wept when he's in that car ride home. I, I couldn't recall a series that had captured the feeling of what freedom must feel like better than this series did with him closing his eyes, feeling the sunlight on his face, the wind blowing through the car. The idea that this is someone 
who has been locked in a cell for 20 years, what does the what does motion feel like? Right? Amantha asks him, Are you car are you gonna be car sick? What what does it feel like to speed down the road when all you've ever done is sit in the cell or maybe walk in a in a courtyard as as your maybe your one hour of exercise a day? It, it just it blew my mind. So I don't want to say that this show makes me know what or, or could make any of us know what incarceration feels like, but it's got to come damn close, right? To At least we're thinking about it in ways that virtually no other series forces us to do. Yeah, I think you have a good point there. And part of you know, part of the problem with Hollywood depictions of prison, with the with a few rare exceptions, like maybe Shawshank Redemption. I mean, you think of anything from Cool Hand Luke uh, to something like I just watched uh, with my boys during the the quarantine here, um, uh, Goodfellas. And it's funny when the main characters go to prison it's just kind of glossed over. And basically what they do is they are like, they eat steaks and they drink wine that's been smuggled in for them. You know, it, it, it kind of becomes a punchline almost their, their time in prison. Like, ah, you're going to do six years. You know, it's no big deal. Everybody does it. Don't worry about it. Um, and this show, it definitely does. I mean, first of all, I think when you're in that cell in, in, um, I mean, that, that was like one of the experience that that's one of the comments that my wife Courtney made after we watched this first episode was like, um, commenting on how tiny that cell seemed and how would you even keep from going insane in that small of a space? And I'm looking forward to seeing what are these meditative practices and what are the books he's reading that keep him sane? But also, this is even more than giving us a feeling of what it's like to be incarcerated. I think it even more shows us the shock and trauma of being freed from that incarceration. You know what I'm saying? Like he, he he's yeah. even more talkative and energetic um uh and loquacious with his with his um the guy in the cell next to him. In prison, when he gets out, it's almost like he's in a walking a coma. Point. He can't he can't even have a conversation with his sister or his mom. That's a great point. I you know, I think about that's a, and that's a completely different take on the an an incarceration narrative, right? Because to your point about um kind of a Hollywood take on imprisonment, it's always mined for in the case of Goodfellas, showing how connected those criminals were how they could kind of beat the system. Uh, if you think about shows like Oz, it's it's mined for violence, right, and depravity. And you look at a show like this when, you know, and we talked about how we wanted to approach a series like this. You know, the U.S. has the highest incarceration rate of any country in the world. We spend $182 billion every year maintaining prisoners, Yet, how many of us, like, I don't know anybody in my immediate circle who's ever spent time in prison. I mean, I think they're, you know, like, being from the South, there's always a distant relative who did time or whatever. But, like, this is such, there's so many people in our communities that live through this. And we follow, if we profess a Christian faith, 
we follow someone who says, I come to bring, to free the captives, right? To bring liberation to those who are captive. And a show like this, you know, I can read all these statistics about imprisonment and incarceration and feel a certain way or think a certain way. But then if I watch a show like this, that through the trauma of release um, and showing how radically different the experience of life is behind bars, that that's working on me as a viewer and as a viewer of faith in a different way. Right. And so, for example, I can think about the death penalty and look back over time and the evolution of my perspective on the death penalty. But I mean, even in one episode or two episodes of rectify, I got to tell you, Tony, I think about incarceration differently. Like, is this humane? Is this Christian? What does a Christian view of incarceration look like? Right. What is justice? What is redemptive? Yeah, well, the, you know, the um, title of the show, Rectify, it means to put something right, to straighten something out. And you wonder, uh, one of the things I really appreciate about the show, even this first episode, is how much complexity and nuance it it reveals right off the bat. So he's not, they make it very clear in Act 1, like, He's not being exonerated. He's just had DNA evidence has come forward that has put into question his conviction. And then you find out the guy that he um, he he confessed. He confessed to both raping and killing his girlfriend. And that they found, when they found her body, they found him with her babbling incoherently except for saying, I'm sorry, you know. Um, so there seems to be evidence both for and against him. And then we have this, obviously, uh, two other guys who are somehow implicated. We, we, we find these two other guys meeting out in the woods by a river. Uh, you got to assume that's close to the murder scene, if not at the spot of the murder. They look to be about, you know, the same age as Daniel and they talk about it, and then one of them ends up committing suicide right there at the end of the show. So it there's yeah. just so much, I think, n- nuance. It's, it's not uh, black and white, good and evil. Like you are, already have mentioned, it couldn't be more different from you know a CSI, like a, a, an hour-long procedural drama on network TV that wraps everything up. Um, which is so yeah. fascinating. And also another interesting thing that the creators of this show have basically done is like every episode covers one day. So they've they've also constrained themselves in certain ways uh, of storytelling, you know, telling the story in that way that would seem like uh, it would make it that much more difficult, but they've put that challenge in front of themselves that that's kind of how they're going to be telling this story. Yeah, and I think you're tapping into that kind of third and final theme for, you know, the sake of time here is this notion of truth of of knowledge and and a series like this that is questioning off, off the bat 
the main event around which the series is built, right? The release of this young man or this now, you know, kind of middle-aged man from prison, there's still questions about his guilt or innocence. And I think it's also questioning or asking us to question how much we can ever really know in any situation. I think about the theologian Marjorie Suhaki and her book, um, The Fall to Violence, where she talks about what forgiveness is, right? And she says that forgiveness is the uh, willing of the well-being of the victim and the violator in the fullest possible knowledge of the offense, right? I'm, and I'm kind of paraphrasing that. But with a recognition that we can never fully know an offense, right? Because we can't know everything that led to that moment. And so in that conversation uh, in the series, in this first episode between the DA, the sheriff, and the senator, they're, they're already questioning what you can know. And certainly now, what can you know 20 years later? What could you know in the moment? What does it mean to walk up to a crime scene and Daniel's holding the body of his dead girlfriend uh, and hit and his semen is in or on her, but there are two other people there. You know, I think this, to your point, this is going, hopefully the series continues to ask us these kinds of, or forces us to ask these kinds of questions. Yeah. The, um, the character CJ Pickens, who seems to be what maybe a retired, uh, DA or something, and they're trying to kind of pull him back in. And he walks up and looks out the window after being leaned on by the state senator and the sheriff and says, well, okay, I'll go back. I'll look back in the files and I'll try to make everything right in my mind. You know, he realizes, yeah. I think that, yeah, this is something we're all gonna, we're gonna see as the show that the, the frailty the fragility of human memory and um, it's, it's non-reliability, you know? Uh, so that's just going to be another thing that we're going to play on. I mean, it, even those two uh, former friends of Daniel's at the river, you know, the, the dialogue is we, Hey, we were just kids. Like, what are you going to say? What are you going to say? I'm just going to tell the truth. Well, what is the truth? Well, what happened? Well, what, what did happen? Tony, if I take, I want to, I want to pose a question to you. If I take this idea, uh, this theme of incarceration and this theme of truth, and I think about our inability to ever truly know what an offense means, right? I, now, listen, I'm not trying to ex- using this to excuse behavior to say that there aren't consequences for our actions in the world, but let's just be honest in the in a place where. We have over in a country where we have over two million people behind bars, and as we know from news stories and series like this, not everybody who's behind bars deserves to be there, right? And in fact, some people are there uh, for uh, reasons of of racism, economic injustice, uh, and a host of other uh, issues. But if we can never know fully what leads someone to do something. And in many cases, we may never be able to know the truth of an event in its entirety because of that. In what ways should that impact how we dole out punishment or think about the consequences for people's behavior? 
that you're you're asking you're asking a rhetorical question, right? <laughs> because my gosh, I mean that's that's I think that's an probably an unanswerable question. You know, the the whole American justice system is built on getting as close to perfect justice as possible while always knowing that perfect justice is impossible, that it cannot be reached. Um and I guess Christians, you know, have traditionally held to the idea that there will be perfect justice meted out by God, but it will never take, we will never see it on this earth. We're just but always, we never, you know, trying to, trying to approximate it. But we never, and I, yeah, you know, it's rhetorical, loaded question, whatever, but, you know, it's, it's certainly fair to say we never, it, it's never felt like we've leaned to the side of forgiveness or rehabilitation. We've always leaned on the side of punishment, right? Like, I don't, I, when I think of the American justice system, I never think of restorative justice in a way that maybe, quite frankly, other countries do, but, um, may do better, right? Like, this is always an outlier for us. It's never, we never move from a, a place of reconciliation or restoration. Well, I think that's quite simply because our entire constitutional system is not based on uh, any kind of moral framework that, you know, w- would al- even allow for that kind of forgiveness or redemption. It's built on well, social I we were a Christian nation. No, we baby, were... you know, we're no, not, you know, on. we're not, we're, we're, it's, it, it our constitutional democracy is based on social contract theory, which means that individual rights are preeminent. And if you um, if you do something that violates the individual rights of another human being, then you forsake your own individual rights. So that's why you go to prison because you know somebody murdered this girl and took away her right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so we do our best to figure out who did that. And we, in turn, take away their rights to freedom. And that's the, that's simply the system that's set up. I, I hear you, It's but it's not a Christian system. So I, I think it's unfair for us to try to impose either upon that system or even upon this show some kind of... Um, ideal of forgiveness like that's what we should be doing what we what all we're set up to do is try to figure out who did wrong and uh bring them to justice that's what the system is set up to do yeah and i don't and i don't want to be misunderstood like my that this my question or uh that line of thinking is I'm not saying like this is what the show should be doing. I think the show is encouraging us to have that conversation, right? I think if anything, like what does a conversation between faith and pop culture, because that's what we're doing here, what does that look like, right? And if this is a series that is capturing what or something of what our real world looks like, then what does our Christian faith have to say to that, right? What is what does that half of the conversation look like rather than simply saying, uh, kind of baptizing 
the system that we're already in or it, it, delaying justice for, you know, kind of a pie in the sky eschatological idea. Um, in what ways can the faith, can the teachings of Jesus, whatever, contribute to this conversation now? And I, I think the show makes space for that. Well, I'm going to be interested watching uh, as we move forward because there's multiple different, you know, um, I'd say plot lines going on. One is Daniel's uh, transformation uh, into society 20 years later. Another one is his guilt or innocence. Another one's going to be how hard is justice going to be pursued among those men who are gathered around the table in the sheriff's office because they're not all, you know, some are just kind of like, we, we don't want to relive this. Let's move on. And others are saying, you know, my career is based on the guilt of this guy. So it's just, yeah, I think there's multiple uh, strains going through and it will be interesting to see, particularly I think as Daniel's spirituality emerges and if it's the same spirituality that helped him do time differently helps him do helps him process time on the outside. That's that's one of the main things I'm going to be looking for just as you're going to be looking for some glimpses of forgiveness, redemption and that kind of thing. So anyway, it's yeah. it's a fascinating show. I think it's really well yeah. acted. There's a whole bunch of other stuff I'd love to talk about. Uh, but we should wrap it up for this we'll episode and we're, we got 29 more to go. So <laughs> Are hey, everybody, ready? thanks. Oh, yeah. yeah th thank you for listening. Here's the deal. We're going to release an episode every Wednesday for 30 straight weeks. And we hope that you will watch rectify along with us. We'd love to hear from you on social media. You can find our, us on Twitter individually, and you can find the podcast at killer serials. And then uh, the number one, Killer Serials One. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook. So we'd love to hear from you if you've got thoughts, if you're watching the show along with us. We're hoping to have some special guests as we go along. But every Wednesday, a different, a new episode going uh, for 30 straight weeks along the uh, series Rectify. What will we finish first, quarantine or Rectify? <laughs> oh my gosh let's help let's Whoop. hope let's hope we're back to some semblance of normal before 30 weeks all right everybody thanks so much for listening to killer serials and we will catch you next week